0: podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Looking at this uh, letter here uh, to the Colossians, and Paul wrote this letter to these believers that he had never met. Uh, He had heard about their faith. Uh, through Epaphras, who was a faithful minister, Epaphras went to go visit him uh, in prison and told them about uh, the faith of the Colossians. And Paul writes to them, thanking God to them um, about their faith. And uh, I'm sure Epaphras also had mentioned some things to Paul that uh, this church had been going through. And so Paul is addressing uh, some of those uh, things there. And We had just finished up this gospel-shaped prayer that Paul had prayed for these believers at uh, Colossae and about how they need to uh, be desiring to know God in a greater way, to know His will. And uh, this passage here that we're going to look at is Paul is going to move from the fact of pointing them to Christ to actually now revealing to them and showing them, who Jesus is. He's telling them, I want you to know God in a a greater way. I want you to know about his will, but now I want to show you who Jesus is so you can have your focus on Christ. And uh, so this passage here that we're going to look at, um, this is probably one of the richest Christ passages in the New Testament that uh, we find And it's really a part of this larger section where Paul reminds the church of their hope that in the gospel and he prays that they will grow in this knowledge of God. And so you could really say that Paul is praying, I want you to grow to know God better. Now here is what he is like. He's giving them an example and showing them exactly who God is. And so in the section that follows, Paul is going to share about Christ who is supreme. Uh, He's going to reveal Christ of who He is and all of His glory, all of His splendor, uh, everything about uh, Christ. And this passage that we're going to look at, it is not only rich in Christ, but also it is very rich in doctrine. And I cannot overemphasize how important it is that we have correct doctrine, because if your doctrine is off on what you believe about who Jesus is, what God is like, what the Holy Spirit does, if any of that is wrong, if that is off, then how you apply that doctrine in your life, how you live, will have a profound impact. So it's very important that we understand who Jesus is, what he is doing, what he has done, and Paul is actually going to do that for us. And so we got to get a very clear picture of Christ and what he has done. And so Paul here shares about Christ who is supreme, Christ who has saved them. There are really no secret truths or greater levels of spirituality. Christ himself is the mystery revealed. He is the one in whom They hope. In a few weeks, we are going to be doing this uh, live drama of the Living Last Supper. And it's interesting to think about this, but uh, Leonardo da Vinci painted this, what he called his masterpiece. Uh, And he spent a long time working on it and spending time on it and trying to get everything exactly the way that he wanted it to be. The painting showcases the scene of the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples as is told in the Gospel of John. Da Vinci depicted the exchange that occurred between Jesus and the twelve disciples when Jesus informed them that one of you will betray me and it is supposed to capture that very moment of when he said that. Interesting enough, da Vinci's most important contribution to the Last Supper may be something that he actually left out of the portrait altogether. The year was 1498, and Leonardo da Vinci had just completed the very last stroke of his masterpiece. And as the painting was drying, da Vinci stepped back and looked at it and was like, man, wow, this is it. This is, I have completed this work. This is great. This is going to showcase exactly, exactly what I wanted to show to people. Seeking affirmation, da Vinci invited one of his closest friends and confidence to view the work of art. Upon viewing the portrait, his attention was drawn to one detail in particular. The cup in Jesus' hand is especially beautiful, noted da Vinci's friend. What a beautiful cup da Vinci had crafted with glimmering precious jewels wrapped in ornate polished gold. This was truly a cup that would be worthy to touch the lips of Jesus, added da Vinci's friend. After discussing the painting in more detail, da Vinci showed his friend the door and promptly removed the cup. From the painting. Later, when Da Vinci's friend saw the altered painting, he inquired as to why Da Vinci removed such an elegant part of the portrait. Da Vinci responded that nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. Da Vinci was willing to put the subject of his painting ahead of his own celebrity so that viewers could behold the true beauty and majesty. Of his subject. It must be noted that the purpose in Paul's writing this letter was because the believers here at this church were being pressured by both outside and inside influences to either take away their focus on Christ and his finished work or to add something more to Christ and his finished work. There were the outside influences of culture that were pressing upon them to look to other things besides Christ and to find fulfillment. And inside the church, false teachers had infiltrated the church in so much to try to pressure these believers to place focus on other things besides Christ and to find satisfaction and approval from God. In the church of Colossae, a heresy Called Gnosticism, had crept into the church and was trying to marginalize Christ. Gnosticism was a combination of mysticism, Jewish legalism, and Greek philosophy. The heresy taught that Christ could not be God. This belief was based on Greek philosophy, which taught that the spirit was good and the body was evil. And therefore, God could not have become a human because God cannot mix with evil. It also taught that Jesus was basically an angel and that receiving him was not enough for salvation. One needed new revelation to be saved. And so that's where the name Gnostic comes from. It means knowledge or to know or to have knowledge, a secret knowledge. And so in order to be saved, one needed this secret knowledge knowledge that only the Gnostics had experienced. The heresy attacked the very foundation of the gospel because it attacked Jesus. Though Gnosticism is is not really attacking the church today, I believe there are still remnants of that still around. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe that he is an angel or a created being. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was nothing more than a created being. Uh, the brother of of Satan. Much of liberal Christianity attacks the deity of Christ as well today, making him just another religious teacher and declaring he is not the only way to heaven. Sadly, in the church today, there are some different attacks on who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, what he does. Recently, there's been false teaching that has crept into many teachers, and they teach about desiring experiences over the truthfulness of God's words. You see, if Jesus is God, and if He is the only way of salvation, and if we declare His Lordship over our lives, then this is not just a matter of belief. It must be a matter of our daily practice as well. And so, Paul's letter here is to remind them of how important it is to hold fast to Christ, to see Jesus as he is, as revealed in the scriptures. And so, to have your focus on Christ and to make sure Jesus and Jesus alone has the preeminence or is the one and only above and over all, is Jesus supreme? Is He supreme in your life? If Christ is supreme, then nothing else should distract us from Him. We must get rid of anything that keeps us from glorifying Christ. Often in our lives, I believe that Christ is marginalized. He is, often isn't first. Schoolwork, hobbies, family, commonly sometimes take first priority in place of that. In these verses that we're going to look at here, Paul is going to give us some reasons why Christ should be first in our lives. He talks about how special Christ is and why he must be preeminent, why he must be first. There's so much to focus on and dwell on here about Christ that we're going to actually be looking at this passage over the next several weeks. So this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. Christ is to be supreme in my life. Is he? Christ is to be supreme in my life. Is he? Let's take note of our text here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. We must answer the question of why should Christ be exalted in our lives? Why should Jesus be supreme? Let's read our text here. Look, Notice in some things that Paul says about this. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul uses a word here in verse number 17, and he says that He might be preeminent. In other words, that He surpasses all others. Very distinguished in some way. Notice, first of all, he must be exalted because he is the image of God. What does that mean? You see, Jesus reveals God to us. Paul says he is the image or the, of the invisible God. The word image here actually means an exact representation and revelation That word is often used of an idol or a picture or a statue. It's actually the word that we uh, receive our English word icon from. In Matthew 22.20, Jesus uses this word image to talk about the portrait of Caesar on a coin when talking about, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar? And he says, give me a coin. Whose image is on there? And they say, Caesar's. In Revelation 13, 14, it is used by the Antichrist to make an image or statue of the beast that people will worship. So what does Paul mean here about Christ by saying that he is the image of God? Here's a couple things to think about. Number one, Christ reveals to us who God is. He teaches us what God is like. Scripture teaches that God is spirit's. And therefore, he does not have flesh and bones like we do. He cannot be seen. And there are times that God had revealed who he was in the Old Testament through uh, many different ways. We can see some of those things if we search through the Old Testament. It has always been the desire of mankind to see God, actually. Moses cried out to God, show me your glory, when he was up there on the mountain with him. But because no one could look at the full display of the glory of God and live, God showed Moses only a portion of his glory, as we read in Exodus 33. So therefore, how can man therefore see God? Well, we can see God through Christ, and we can know him more as we study who Christ is. Remember, these believers, they had not seen Christ. Christ had already ascended up to heaven. But Paul is trying to get their attention and get their focus on Christ so that everything else would just fade away. Listen to John's words here in John 1.18. He says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Christ made God known. Jesus said to His disciples in John 14.9, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In Christ, God manifested himself in ways never clearly seen in the Old Testament. So when Jesus was on the earth, he revealed God the Father. How did he do that? Well, he revealed God through his teachings. Listen to what he said to Philip in John fourteen 10. Don't you believe that I am the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. When Jesus said God was doing his work, he referred to God's words coming through him. Jesus claimed to say only what God had said. Listen again to what he said in John 8, 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The best way that we see how Jesus revealed God was how John describes Jesus in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When John calls Jesus the Word, the name expresses here one of the functions or purposes of Jesus. And so by using that that term there, saying that Jesus is the Word, it is meant to convey that Christ is the very expression of God. God literally walked and dwelt among His creation in the form of Jesus Christ. He is the communication of God. One of the reasons Christ came was to give the words of God to mankind through his teaching to tell people of who God was, to reveal what God has said about who he is. And so when we look at the teachings of Jesus, we see the very words of God. I find it so, so interesting of how people are so confused about what God says. God is not confusing and he's not confusing in what he says. He clearly tells us exactly what He wants us to know. But what we have to do is we have to actually read what He has to say. We have to have the Father reveal to us what He says uh, through His Word. And so we hear the very words of Jesus. When Jesus taught to love our enemy and pray for them, when He taught that hating someone is just the same as murder, and lusting after someone is just the same as adultery, we are hearing the very words of God. In these words, we find a standard that is much higher than our own. And they come down from the Father who is in heaven. And so if we want to know how to live, how to be a good parent, how to be a good spouse, how to be saved, how to make decisions in life, etc., 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 all we need to do is to find out what exactly God says in His Word. And Christ came to reveal those words to us and tell us who He was. And so His teachings are not just seen in the Gospels, but they're in the writings of the apostles, they're in the writings of, of the epistles. They, it's all throughout the Word of God. We have God's Word in everything that He says. We also see Christ revealing God through His person. Jesus revealed many character traits not fully known about God through his person. And one of them is that God is a servant. Listen to what Paul says about Christ in Philippians 2, 6-7. It says, Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human Likeness. Paul uses the word there, nature, in verses 6 and 7, and it means the outward expression of the inward nature. Christ did not become God when He came on this earth. He always was God. He was 100% man and 100% God, not 50-50. 50 50 There are some false teachings that say that Jesus became God at his baptism or that Jesus uh, became God just before he went to the cross. Jesus the man was an outward expression of who he always was as God. Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. He's always existed. But he took upon himself the form of a servant. He took upon himself flesh and dwelt among us. God has always been a servant. But in Christ's incarnation, he demonstrated this outwardly. Jesus not only served God, but he served us. Listen to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man, these are words of Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does that not really sum all of it up? Jesus has revealed who he was and he did so by serving and giving his life as a ransom for us. What was the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth? Was it to heal people and perform miracles and and give us some, some great teachings? No, it was to reveal the Father Jesus came to show that he was serving the Father and he was going to give his life as a ransom for us. We who do not deserve salvation. We who do not deserve forgiveness. We who do not deserve grace. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us. We were being held captive by our sin. But Jesus paid the ransom, did he not? He died on the cross for our sins. He was crucified and took upon himself the sin of us, the punishment that we so rightly deserve. Jesus took that upon himself so that we could be set free. Our text here says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Not only does Christ being the image of God reveal to us who God is, but also, secondly, Christ represents all that God is. Jesus is the perfect remedy for man's sin. You know, if we go all the way back to, the, to uh, creation, we go all the way back to the, to the book of Genesis there, we find that word image was actually used of Adam in the Garden of Eden since he was made in the image of God. God made Adam to represent Him of all creation, and what what did He tell Adam to do? He says, "You are going to have dominion over this earth. Right? You're gonna you're gonna have uh, uh, leadership, and you're going to rule over this earth. Everything that I have here in the garden, you have dominion over, Adam. You can name the animals. You can you have it, Adam. This is yours. You have dominion over it. But what happened? Adam sinned willfully. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned willfully. And because of that is what Romans 5, 15 through 19 gives us, a good understanding of the result of Adam's sin. Listen to what it says. Because of Adam's sin, it brought judgment and condemnation. Because of Adam's sin, death reigned. Because of Adam's sin, it led to condemnation for everyone that is born into this world. Because of Adam's sin, many were made sinners. The image was marred and distorted now. Remember what Paul is calling these believers to dwell on. Christ, who is the image of God. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, Scripture calls Christ the last Adam. And it says the first Adam became a living being. But the last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life-giving Spirit. Where Adam failed to represent God in the in uh, where, where he failed to represent God as he fell into sin, Christ has not and will not fail God. He is the perfect representative of everything that God is. He's perfect. He's without sin because he is God. I had mentioned what the consequences were because of Adam's sin in Romans 5, 15-19. But because the image, because that image has been marred, because it has been distorted, Jesus, who is our last Adam, can make the difference. You see, because of our image, because it's so distorted and marred, there's no hope for us outside of Jesus. None whatsoever. You and I cannot fix ourselves. We're hopelessly lost. And so we need Jesus. We need the life-giving spirit, which is Christ, the last Adam. Listen to what Romans 5:15 through 19 says about Jesus Christ, who is the image of God and what he has done. Because of Christ, much more we now have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, the free gift following many trespasses has now brought justification. Because of Christ, now we can receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness that reigns in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, His one act of righteousness has led now to justification and life for all men. Because of Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous. You see, there's something for us to learn about who Jesus is as he is the image of the invisible God. It's not just this same old same old. yeah, I believe in Jesus, ah, yeah, okay, I know Jesus, yes. He is supreme. There is no one else like him at all. And without him, we would be hopelessly lost without Jesus. He has shown us the Father. The Father has revealed to us the Son who has been given as the only way of salvation. And so what applications can we take from Christ being the image of God? How can we boil all this down into something very practical? I mean, here's these believers living at this church, and they are being pressured by outside influences and inside influences to take their focus off Christ to have their focus and to find their fulfillment in something else besides Christ Paul wanted these believers to have their focus on Christ that he might have the preeminence the surpassing of all others so I'm gonna give you three questions What do we worship that we think is more worthy than Christ, who is the exact representation of God? What do we worship more than Christ? We all do it, myself included. It could be our job. It could be our family. It could be how we are perceived by others, our image, Could be hobbies, could be money, prestige, knowledge. What do we worship more than Jesus, who should have the preeminence? Has those things taken the place of Christ? Has Christ been kind of pushed into the shadows a little bit? And those other things have taken the center stage. Who or what do we imitate that we think is more worthy of Christ? Who is the exact representation of God? We all do it, myself included. We try to imitate others, try to be like others, try to say things exactly like somebody else may say it. What do we imitate? Are we imitating Christ or are we imitating what the world wants us to be? what the world thinks that we should be? What has taken the center stage of our lives besides Christ? What do we think is more worthy or important than Christ, who is the exact representation of God? What has worth in your life? What is valuable to you? I was just recently watching a a, a documentary. I didn't get to finish it but it's, it's basically about people trying to make the transition or the adjustment of living in a digital age. How many of you have a lot of papers stuffed away someplace, right? And these people trying to figure out, do I save all of this stuff? Versus getting rid of it all, and I have all my pictures now on a digital camera or whatever, but we have a lot of things in our life that has worth and we think has value. What is it in our lives that we think has worth and value more than Jesus Christ? All those things are going to pass away. But Jesus is eternal. Christ is worthy, Christ is supreme, Christ should be first, Christ should surpass all others because He is the image of the invisible God. Does He have that place in your life? Does He have that preeminence in this body of believers here? Is Christ the head of this church? Does He have preeminence here? When we come together to worship, are we gathering together to worship the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ? Or is it for some other reason that we've gathered here today? See, so we've got to ask ourselves those questions. Because we don't want Christ to be pushed off to the side or to become marginalized in our life. Are we living epistles of the worthiness of Christ in our lives? Let's pray together.